welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. You know, while we're waiting, I just want to thank you all for bringing us over. This was a real, real treat, and thank you very, very much. And getting to meet all of you, and or at least some of you, <laughs> the S9 part, <laughs> has really been a treat, and I really, really appreciate it. So thank you very, very much. Well, he, he is, you did a good job when you got him. Thank you. Okay, come on in. Tonight we're going to talk about coupleship. You went from here so they can see. I'm, oh, I'm hiding behind the podium. <laughs> uh, basically, we're going to answer your questions before you ask them. <laughs> <laughs> It's amazing how there are basically just certain questions that get asked over and over again. Uh, one is always about how do you tell your children and your family? Another is um, what about sex and marriage between the two of you? Um, what's another good one that we hear so often. I don't know. <laughs> Let him ask. Okay. But we'll, we're going to start by telling you a little about our own history. History. Um, I met Nancy when she was 17 years old. Um, we've been married 51 years. Happily married for about eight. <laughs> <laughs> She's adding years every time we talk about this. Uh, this is working because we're going to need to stand. Here, can you all shift over here, please? Oh, great. So I'm delighted Nancy said eight years now. We have been married. We've been.
been married um, now more in recovery than we've been married in the disease. Okay. So we've been in recovery now 29 years, and we've been married 51. And I remember that moment in time when we were got up, and I realized we were married more than more now in recovery, a day more at the time than we were in the disease, you know. And so we've had now 29 years in recovering. And it's been an adventure. See, Nancy is a sexual abuse victim. She was so young that she didn't know she was being sexually abused. This, I'm the only one she had known. That's what she tells me, please. You know. And you're supposed to laugh at that. You're supposed to laugh. And, uh, Only I know. Yeah, right. We have one. We have four sons. They're all in their forties now. But one of them's bright red hair, carrot top, real red. And I'll always say, "Gee, you know, where did that red hair come from?" And he says, "He looks just like his father." <laughs> now that's the humor. That's the humor that Nancy has brought into our recovery, <clears throat> you know, where we could laugh about the craziness and about all There was a, a point in my life during the craziness and chaos that was in our home because not only is there sexual addiction, there's an eating disorder that's mine. There's the alcoholism. And I was bringing up four children in this sort of atmosphere. And I also was a very, very abusive mother. I beat my children. Because there's this old story about the husband yells at the wife, the wife yells at the children, and the children kick the dog. And that's what happened. That was the... The effect that that happened in my life. Thank God I had a big dog who could take it. <laughs> we didn't go for small dogs. We went for Doberman Pinschers or stuff like that. So that's what happened. And during the disease, and I told my Essanon group this earlier, that I put all of my, I made a basket full of beautiful eggs. One egg was my self-esteem. One egg was my sense of humor. One egg was my ability to take care of myself. And all of my good character traits, I put in this basket of eggs. And what I did as a volunteer, I did this voluntarily. I gave this basket to a very sick man. He had a disease. And he dropped it. And all those eggs went on the ground, and they all broke. And what I wanted to do was have someone else repair those eggs. I wanted them to fix it. But I learned it was up to me. So there was a point in my life 
when the egg of sense of humor was broken and I didn't have it. Well, I'm here to tell you guys it's back. My sense of humor is back and I say I never know what's going to come out of my mouth, ever. (laughs) But what I enjoy today is being able to laugh. And being able to laugh at some of the stuff the disease does. And to laugh at this disease, which is a deadly disease, people die from it. Essanons die from it. Essays die from it. But there are some parts of it that are funny. They just are. Harvey will come out with stuff that's just, you know, funny stuff. (laughs) And what the problem in our household today is, I used to be the only one to crack jokes. Well, his egg, he got a sense of humor all of a sudden in his recovery. And he's starting to really lighten up, too. And we have, I think, a really good time together. And that, to me, is important. You know, at early Essanons, we used to leave claw marks on the walls of recovery rooms because we were desperate. You know, in our meetings today, there was a lot of laughter and a lot of fun. It didn't used to be that way. It used to be real grim recovery. And today we can laugh a little bit. So... Nancy says, whenever I make a joke now, she says, stop it. We can only have one comedian in this family. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So she was not only indirect recipient of my addiction, but she was a direct recipient. I kept giving her venereal diseases. I, um, I kept actually abusing her. Uh, she was never safe. She'd get all dressed up, and we'd be going out to a big event, and she looked so exotic to me at that moment that I had to have sex with her, whether she was dressed or not. It just total sexual abuse. And she learned that if she said no, I would intimidate her so much that she learned that she's better off now would you say the... Tears on your pillow? Tears in my ears. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. So I like mine better. Tears I know, my it's pillow. a country music song. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> um, and what Harvey is saying is correct. There were many, many, many years of, of abuse where I had sex when I didn't want to. And there were times, and I shared this with the Yes and Non group, that if I came home in the afternoon and I saw Harvey's car there, I wouldn't come home. I'd keep driving around until the kids were home because I knew that if I entered my home, he would want to have sex. He spelled vacation, S-E-X. There was just... That is the way his disease was prevalent. Now, I also believe there's part of the disease of sexaholism That's the anorexic part. It's still the disease. But I meet many Essanons who 
story is not my story at all. It's the complete opposite Well, where they will say, my husband never wants sex with me. So I have developed this idea over the years that there are two sides to the same coin of sexaholism. My story is the sexual abuse side. Someone else's story might be the sexual anorexic side. So the first development in our recovery happened about 11 months into the recovery when when my uh when I got frightened that since everyone I knew relapsed that I needed to do something for my program to prevent relapsing and so I decided to be abstinent and I asked Nancy, would it be okay with you if we have a period of abstinence? And I thought she'd start screaming, no, no, anything but that, no, please. <laughs> and instead, she looked at me with a look I had never seen before in her. It was a look of such hatred and disgust. And she said, Certainly, I've had enough sex with you to last me a lifetime. With such hatred. But I'm a sex addict. I never knew what that meant. So after six weeks, I said, hey, Nan, I'm ready. Prove my point. I'm ready. And she said, I'm not. So I called my sponsor, Jess, and I said, Jess, can you imagine this ungrateful woman? <laughs> Here I am, this epitome of recovery. I've asked for six weeks of abstinence. <laughs> and she's saying, no, what's going on here? And he said to me in his lovely, gentle way, Hey, stupid! <laughs> <laughs> that was my I nickname. Yeah. <laughs> that was my nickname. He called me stupid. But sometimes it got elevated to a, a little less of a name. He would call me knucklehead. <laughs> knucklehead. So at least he only called me stupid and not knucklehead that time. And he said, hey, stupid, you're a sex addict. How the heck do you know when to stop your celibacy, to stop your abstinence? Let God talk through your wife. <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, no, no. <laughs> and God, uh, I think he fell asleep. <laughs> or he had a very busy almost couple of years. <laughs> Harvey, Harvey who? <laughs> Oh, that guy who keeps trying to 
manipulate sex from his wife? He whined and complained for almost two years. I'm going to get prostatitis. I'm going to have a nocturnal emission. This isn't good for my program. You should have served cheese with your wife. Cheese with my wife. <laughs> That's W-H-I-N. Those are different language. Are you guys able to see Nancy? It doesn't matter. You can hear me. Yeah. <laughs> it's not. It doesn't Let's matter. Go to the podium. Here you can. No, it won't be too far if you don't smile. <laughs> Be the most nurtured person in the world. 
think I will skip that approach for nurturing. Thank you. But she helped us see that since Nancy was 17, she had so much sex with me that she never had time to know what a sexual feeling is. She never had to develop it. There was no nothing to develop. And over the years, Nancy would occasionally ask <laughs> if I maneuvered and manipulated enough. And this went on for years. And one day, Nancy said, Harvey, I want you to ask. And I was still too frightened. Years into the program. And I said, Hun, I'll tell you, we'll do it every other. I'll ask one time. And then I'm not going to ask until you want it. And then I could ask the next time. Now, Harvey, of course, kept track out of this back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't keep track, but he... I trusted him to keep track. <laughs> and by the way, I don't need a pencil and paper to keep track. <laughs> and this went on for years. And then somewhere along the way, Nancy said, you know, Harvey, let's stop this all today. Ask when you want, you know, whatever. And it went a bit okay for years. And then this guy in Nashville starts talking about how he and his wife does do it. They had one night a week. Whether it rained, whether it poured, whether it snowed, whether it was a typhoon, earthquakes, they had it one night a week. And I said, that's the most stupid thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Where's the spontaneity? You must have spontaneity to have good sex. All these self-lies. And one day, after enough back and forth for years, I said, and Nancy and I said, you know, Maybe it's not a bad idea. And it changed our sexual lives. That same old crap of not having open-mindedness, of automatically thinking what someone else said is wrong. I mean, the same process I do with so many other things. And it's been our answer. Why? Well, on we have it a certain day. Sometimes things happen, and so it gets shifted to another seven-day rotation. And number one, how did we come to once a week? Well, I noticed. Nancy never noticed it, but I noticed it. About three weeks without sex. Nancy would say, oh, your hair looks so nice, Harvey. <laughs> or sometimes she'd go like this. She never touches me, usually. I don't get that many Except compliments. When I do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, it's an odd salute. 
And she kind of looked at me in a certain way. Oh, do you have that look? (laughs) So I figured it was about once every three weeks for her. And I started... You gave that a lot of thought. Yes, I did. (laughs) That's all I think about. What do you expect? And... And I start getting, quite often, after about a week and a half, unsettling first signs of dreams. And I started realizing that my body, kind of in a natural order, has a bath every week and a half. By the way, we, we're already in our, at this time in our 60s. Be so careful not to make frequency concepts for other people. There are young kids in the program who come in and they have higher frequency rates. And it's not necessarily their addiction. It's just how it is. There are certain people for religious reasons who for a few weeks of the month don't have sex together. And so they might have it more frequently during the two weeks they do have sex together. I've learned, don't judge for other people. We learned it the hard way because we used to go around preaching about the wonders of abstinence. And these good friends of ours once, early on in the program those first few years, walked up to us really angry. Yeah, Joanne, I forgot his name. Mary said. And really angry. And said, my husband never had sex with me in his addiction. And his recovery is, he is having some frequent sex with me. God, we get so used to making this a religion. Stamp this, stamp that. No, that's not how it usually is. And I hate to admit it. Because I want everyone to do everything the way I do it. My politics, my beliefs, my program. That's what a controller does. And so why does it work for us? Because on the, oh, so seven days with kind of an easy way to deal with this. And why does it work for us? Six days a week when I'm nice to Nancy, if ever, she knows I'm doing it. Without a payoff. Without a sex payoff. This, every time I used to be nice to her, in back of my mind, gee, if I take the garbage out, if I do this, if I do that, maybe I'll get some tonight. It takes all the payoff for it away. She knows that no matter what I do and say to her that day, there is no payoff. And what does it do for me? Excuse me, what's the payoff? 
Um, a reward. A reward. Something in return. Yeah. And for but me, I, what does it do for me? It lets me know what is my natural desire for my wife and what's lust. Because if I'm thinking about it on the day that it's not our day, that's lust. Clear-cut lust. What the hell are you thinking about this for? You're not getting it tonight. Lust. No other word for it. And I don't want lust in my life today. So it's freed me of knowing what is my truth. <laughs> and as the Essanon, it's so freeing for me to know that I'm not going to be asked. No matter what happens, I don't... In my life, it is a freedom. It's a freedom and a new happiness knowing that I am not going to be approached night after night after night. Now, do you know the definition of foreplay? And I'll give you my definition. It's when Harvey calls me and he says, I'm going by the grocery store. Do you need something? <laughs> Think about it. That he was thinking of me in a way that wasn't when I was horizontal. It wasn't both. Laying on her back. <laughs> <laughs> in bed. <laughs> I, like be, I like being treated as a person, not as an object. And when Harvey is treating me as a person, I like it a lot. I really, really do. I used to ask Nancy, and I'd get so angry. She'd say, I knew it. I saw it in your eyes. I saw it. That look. That look. And she, I'd feel so shamed. I saw it. Now, I'm blind in one eye, and I say, Nancy, do you see it in my good eye? <laughs> <laughs> but that's only on the day where we do it. <laughs> I want to share with you how ill I am of this sex addict. I sponsor a guy who has decades of sobriety, and he has small children. He doesn't get to have sex very often with his wife, and it was their special time, and he was going, they were going out or something, and he came down with a terrible cold, and he said, this is about two two, three years ago, he said, oh, I got a cold. I can't believe I got a cold today. We were supposed to have sex. I'm not going to have, to have sex with my wife. I said, you mean you don't have sex with your wife when you have a cold? Can we open a window talking about cold? <laughs> it never occurred to me. I'm selfish and self-centered. Never occurred to me I might give my wife a cold if I have sex with her when I have one. I had to learn it from my sponsee when I had like 26 years of sobriety. 
And now with our date, if I'm sick on that date, it screws up two weeks. <laughs> no wonder you take so much vitamin C. <laughs> and lo and behold, I got sick, real sick, two weeks ago. And I was so grateful to God that I got sick then because everyone was sick in the States. And I had it in my addictive mind. It was going to happen on the airplane. I wouldn't be able to speak. You had invested all this money. You know how it goes. And I couldn't speak to you that I had such a bad cold. And <laughs> <laughs> But it happened on our day. <laughs> and I think Nancy went into a state of shock. <laughs> when what I said, a beautiful when thing I, recovery <laughs> is. Because Harvey said, I have a cold. We, we can't have sex tonight. I did the happy dance. <laughs> that was really such good recovery. That I could see, and I told my Essanon group that we talk about um, sometimes in our meeting about trust and control and all these different topics that we come up with. And one of the things that I do is I don't trust my ears. I trust my eyes. I watch. I, I don't necessarily listen because I, I, I hear... Um, Couples in S.A. and S.N.N. where he tells the wife, oh, I, I, I love you, I love you, I love you, and he goes home and beats the heck out of her. You know, that, that's not exactly the love or the actions of love. Harvey took the action of love. He took the action of recovery when he said, I'm sorry, I have a cold. We can't have sex tonight. That was such a beautiful way because before it didn't matter which one of us was there. It didn't matter. If he wanted sex, that was it. I could have had a temperature, just birthing babies, made no difference. Made no difference. I had to have sex with my wife on vacations when my children were in the next bed. And I'd do it in a certain way, thinking they wouldn't know. I was totally without power. We had a lock on our bedroom door that we kept locked at night. And one morning I woke up, there was a storm in the middle of the night, and my little children were piled up by the door because they couldn't get into their mom and dad because the addiction was running the house. The disease ran the house. <clears throat> so what happened? The second week <laughs> and the argument in my head, Harvey, you still have a call but you're not sick. Almost a week. 
You're not catching right now, probably. Infectious. You're probably not infectious. You can do it. Once I heard that voice, I knew that was my disease time. And I said to Nancy, on the following, the next week of our date night, of our sex night, I said, Nancy, I still don't think I might be well enough. I don't want to take the chance. Yeah. And two weeks went for that period. Now, I'm telling this story because it's not about Nancy. It's about me. The miracle that happens in me. May you not have to take 27 years to get to where I got. You all could do this quicker. You have people before you who have walked the way. We have, we had no one basically walked the way. A few, few people. You can stand on our shoulders and see further than we do. <clears throat> this it's taken us such a long time and taken me such a long time. And I'm certainly not there yet. Yeah. Let's go to that other topic. How much longer do we have? I have to wait. 20 minutes. I, I, I'd like to, us to talk about that other impossible situation. Can you open another window? Are you cold? No, that's no, fine. That's fine. fine. <laughs> okay, the other um, topic is how do you tell your children? What do you tell your kids? What do you tell your family? I'm going to tell the story that I've told many times. It happened about 10 years ago. We've always been totally transparent about SA. From the day I came into SA, my children were told they were teenagers, young teenagers, some of them, and they were told, where are you going, Dad? I'm going to an SA meeting. It was as natural as anything else. SA meeting. That's what I said. No one really asked me much about it. Got essay. Um, my books would be around. <laughs> yeah. And they started saying to Nancy, our friends are coming. Can you tell Dad to move his books away? <laughs> <laughs> and one day we're going off to the international conference because, see, when we started, there were so few of us in so few cities that without these, we wouldn't probably have made it as well. We made lifetime friends at these kind of meetings. Twice a year. The whole international conference wasn't this big. Right. The first few we went to. Maybe it was this big. And we'd go and we'd meet people and go into one of these conferences. And some of you are too young, you might not remember the movie. But our kids said, out of nowhere, oh, are you going to one of those lustbuster conferences again? 
Ghostbusters movie. And they said, are you going to one of those Lustbuster meetings at uh, conferences? Whenever three of our four sons are recovering alcoholics, and so we would be in treatment centers year after year. <laughs> one would get out, and the next one would decide to get some help. I mean, this is a genetic disease. I really believe in my core that this is a genetic disease. In Harvey's family, the sexaholism was on his mother's side. The alcoholism was on his father's side. <clears throat> he had a propensity to both the diseases of alcoholism and sexual addiction. There was no way he could have avoided it. In my four sons, he said three are alcoholics. No way they could have avoided it. I don't know why my fourth son is not. That just escapes me. All four of them had had incidences because of alcoholism, of alcohol, all four of them. The fourth one hit a water main at his school. He was driving drunk in college and got into lots of trouble. So he, has, he had trouble, too. Now, the sexaholism did not show up yet in the four sons. But my 17-year-old granddaughter is in her second treatment center and asked to start going to SA because she believes she's a sex addict. How does she know? How does she even know to ask about going to SA? Because it's never been a secret. She knows where to go for help. When we went to visit her in her first treatment center in Utah, that's in the States, Harvey told her counselor the fact that he's in SA. <coughs> there are no secrets in my family. My daughters-in-law send me Essanon. If they know a friend of theirs is having an affair, they'll have them call me. This is not a secret cult. So a few, a few uh, about ten years ago, my son um, had this beautiful new girlfriend. I mean, how he's even shorter than I am, and he gets this blonde goddess. Let me tell you. <laughs> but you didn't know. Uh, but I didn't know it <laughs> before. I noticed uh, some attractive woman. And I said to my wife, gee, she has a good form, but I'm so glad I'm a recovering sexaholic who's blind in one eye and did not notice it. And then we just laughed. We just laughed. I probably could be blind in two eyes and notice an attractive one. You know, and as I always say to people in the program, don't whine and complain to me that half the population is having, you're having trouble and having to avoid. My disease was with women, men and women. 
There's no one who is safe from me. All this whining. My own body isn't safe to me. I'm a compulsive masturbator when I'm not in this program. So he comes to the house of this beautiful gal, and he says, we're sitting in our little den, and he says, Dad, tell me why you're in the program. (laughs) Where the hell did that come from? I said, in front of your girlfriend? And he said, yes. And I panicked, Nancy panicked. We had been doing this for years, but all of a sudden in front of a girlfriend? So I said, okay, I'll go up and get a brochure. That's how I tell my children. I read the problem. I just read the problem and say, this is who I am. And we have a brochure that has a problem in it. He said, no, Dad, I don't want to hear your brochure. (laughs) Tell me your story. (laughs) In front of your girlfriend? Yeah. And I panicked. And all of a sudden, I said, God talked for me. And out of my mouth came my qualifier. You know, first they said, I believe I have a disease, that I was born this way. And my disease took the form of chronic masturbation, sexually abusing your mother, and promiscuity predominantly gay. And then I shut my big mouth. And there was dead silence. I was under the couch by that. <laughs> I love watching Nicholas's expressions. I am getting more out of watching Nicholas. I want to know how long it took her to get out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still there. <laughs> and, but better than being in the closet. Yeah. Okay. And so here she... Here that we are in dead silence. And then I said, Do you have any other questions? <laughs> I might not answer them. Why not answer them? But do you have any more questions? And all of a sudden, this grown man in front of his girlfriend starts weeping. And say that I can't tell you how proud I am of what you've done with your life. <laughs> and people shiver and shake about their family knowing. Continue this family secret. This secret that a lot of our own children are suffering from. That we can't prevent, but we could tell them there's a way. We don't even have to say it, we could live it. 
we can live the way. And they know there's an answer when they're ready. My sponsor, Cherry, would always say, he never had anyone lose respect for his recovery. But he had lots of people lose respect for him when he was in Atkins disease. We tell our in-laws the same son ended up, oh, by the way, I want to finish the story. And this I had told a couple here the other day. About two years later, the same son meets us in New York. We have four sons. And he meets us in New York for a vacation. And we're walking down Broadway. And all of a sudden, he says, Dad, did you have sex with this man and this man and this man? He starts listing men we knew. And I answered a few. And he asked me some more. I said, Seth, I think that's enough for me. See, we're not victims. When it doesn't feel quite right, it doesn't feel quite right. But usually it feels all right. And what happened with this boy, who's a man? He was married, and he was just having a baby. This was two years ago. And we go. He asked us to be with them for the two weeks after the baby. And I'm there with him, he and I, to name the baby. And we're in the parking lot of the synagogue. And he looks at me, and he said, Daddy, this gal I used to date two months ago found me on Facebook. And I looked him in the eye, and I said, Son, you've already had sex with me, haven't you? I said, You've already had sex with this woman, haven't you? And he said, yes. A brand new baby. <clears throat> and I asked him some questions about, I said, son, do you think you're a sexual addict too? And he answered some of my questions. And he, no, he, he looks like he had an affair. Kind of. And then he opens up and tells me the year before he discovered his wife was sex texting. He hadn't told anybody. And a month or two later, he finds out she's pregnant. And in his mind, for nine months, he was convinced it wasn't his baby. He had to carry all that by himself. And he shared all that. And it is his baby. He had a DNA test and all that. <clears throat> I do not believe he could have ever told me all that that day if I hadn't been transparent with him within appropriateness the two years before. See, I keep saying this over and over. It's so hard to convince people of this. God's chest moves are so intricate we can't ever fathom them 
Sorry, don't watch. Chess sorry. moves on a chess checker. Okay, right. okay. He is moving the pawns. <laughs> Unbelievable. He knew what I was going to do before I even did it. <coughs> but how it's all part of this plan of finding God's will and the power to carry it out. It's all so connected. How important each one of us are in saving lives after lives, whether physically or spiritually, by letting people know there is an answer. Now, to lighten this up, the same son, when he got married, called us and said, Hey, Mom and Dad, I never thought I'd find a more dysfunctional family than ours. (laughs) (laughs) But I found one. (laughs) His ex-wife's parents, who were our relatives, were nudists. So our in-laws were nudists. We go visit them. They'd always invite us to their nudist colony. And I'd say to them, I had, I'd say year after year, we'd stay at their house. They did dress for us. But Nancy, for years, they were married for like, what, eight years. Nancy would tell some of the things you'd say about them. Their dry cleaning bills were very low. <laughs> they didn't have to pack a lot when they <laughs> They didn't have to spend money for luggage. <laughs> well, well, what happened is I would say to them, I understand so much about your community, and how you want to share it, and how you go all over and you have your friends and you love them. I understand that that's what I have in Sexaholics Anonymous. And I did. I understood. They talk about their nudie friends like we talk about our recovering friends. That's how it is. By the way, we could go Hours, because we're getting signals, hours with these kind of stories. You can't believe them. You can't make this stuff up. You can't make our stories up. They're too inconceivable. (laughs) Too inconceivable. But every one of our in-laws have always been told. My daughter, one of my daughter-in-laws, who's real tough and rough, and she says, she said, I don't want any of your essay people when my baby's born around them. I don't want any of them around them. And I said, Jody, are you concerned about me? This I could understand with me being an essay that you might not want me around your children, my grandchildren, and I'll understand. And she said, no, it's not about you. She gave birth that day. She handed us the babies. We had those kids for years. Jim E. You know Jim? 
would come to our house. He was a priest who who would travel all over, and he'd come to our house, and people have heard the story, and she walks up to him when he's visiting, and her kids were there, and he looks at, she looks at this guy who's real tall, and says, are you one of those priests we read about? <laughs> and he, in this loving, beatitudinal look, looks at her and says, no, I'm not one of those priests you're reading about, you know, with kids. But I am so glad you asked me because that's what everyone's thinking when they're meeting me. Anyway, <laughs> and thank God you asked me directly. She was fine from then on. She didn't give a darn who was in the house. Life is so nice when you don't have to keep secrets. It doesn't mean the minute you meet someone, you tell them. It doesn't mean you get diarrhea of the mouth. Because that's what addicts do and maybe co-addicts. You either lie and don't say anything, or you say too much. But there is a method you do. I won't go through it all because of the time called The Simple Truth. I, there's an article I wrote in the, um, in the essay some months ago called uh, Keeping a Secret Life. Life. It's real easy when you accept one thing, that this is a disease. If you truly believe this is a disease, then you're not going to be in such shame and fear for someone else to find out. You're not going to be like it used to be when I was a child and a woman would get breast cancer and she wasn't even allowed to say it. It was dealt with as a shame thing for whatever reason. That's where we are today with Sexaholics Anonymous dealing with a disease that does not have to be so shame exposed or whatever, <clears throat> embodied. But it can't be done if you yourself don't believe you have a disease and don't expect your wife to believe it if you don't have it. I don't want to end with some pointers to the women or the men who are married to sexaholics. We're liars and thieves and cheats. That's what we do in our addiction. Do you know when a sex addict is lying? Whenever he's moving his lips. <laughs> when he's in his disease you're not to believe and you know when he's in his disease and you guys stop complaining always about your wives which we all do my sponsors just ripped me up over and over about that we're married to saints. Could you imagine putting up with a wife doing the things we've done? 
like they put up with us? How often are you coming home and saying, I am so glad I married you? How often are you telling her how you appreciate her? <coughs> and her beauty and her wonderment. How often are you doing the simplest thing that is so hard for people to do in recovery and we get calls from all over the country about it saying, I didn't believe you, but it really does work. You must have a date night a week. I'm not talking sex night. That's separate concepts. You must go have a Sabbath of coupleship. A night that's holy where you just go out together without the children. Without the children as a couple. It's so simple people won't do it. This program is so simple, people can't get it. It's too simple. They want to invest thousands of dollars in therapy, or euros in therapy. But first try one night a week. No matter what. I guarantee you how much better things will go in your marriage. And thank Nancy, you've got some of no, but you read the script I wrote for you very well about okay. loving your wife. <laughs> I'm so glad I married you. <laughs> Any questions? Sorry, give me. Yeah, that's the whole. I heard that you. Don't know if I heard it exactly. But if there no, there's no way to convince my wife that I have a illness. Because my wife thinks uh, that, uh, think that it's my character defect. Mm-hmm. And um, she told me that I have made a decision mm-hmm. to betray her. And it's not possible to show me up that it's a disease. She don't believe me. She thinks it's, a, it's an excuse. As an Essanon, can I answer you? Stay sober. That's the only way to see a different person. If you're not staying sober and you continue to relapse. I asked Nancy, I had a sponsee whose wife, this is about six, seven years ago, whose wife drove him nuts, saying, how do I know you're sober? How do I know you're really sober? How do I know? And he called me, Harvey, she won't leave me alone. How do I prove I'm sober, etc.? Got off the phone, and I looked at Nancy, when I had 23 years at the time or something, I looked at Nancy, I said, honey, how do you know I'm sober? <laughs> how do you really know I'm sober? What she said, I could have fallen over. She said, oh, I see you hit your knees twice a day. I see you rushing off to meetings. 
and I over listen to I over I ear drop on your telephone eavesdrop on your telephone conversations. I listen to what you say. Who <laughs> knew <laughs> this was how she knew I was sober? I want you to tell her I want you to tell me, Oh, I see it in your eyes when <laughs> oh, you close and you're so magnanimous and so good to me and you're a saint and oh, how did I deserve a man like this? <laughs> And I always tell the Essenons, trust your eyes, not your ears, because like you said, there is no way he can convince his wife he has a disease. There is no way. She's not good. You know, the ears don't tell the story. The eyes do. The eyes tell the story. I, I used to watch my son. He'd go to a mall and he'd continually look at all the women passing by. And the girlfriend at this time, Time used to call him out on it. But he was always revolving his head. Yeah, I thought it was going to come off at one point. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a definite clue. That's a definite clue. I'd like to respond. The more you try to convince her, the more you have to deal with your own disease about women that you're getting preoccupied about a woman. Wives aren't people to get preoccupied. That's our addiction. They're another person in our life, a meaningful one, but not a preoccupation. She'll either know it or she won't. That's none of your business, what she believes. And the same thing would happen if you were of a different political party than she was, or a different religion. You could either spend your time trying to convert her to what you believe, or you could live your life in your religion in a wonderful way, and she either sees it or she doesn't. No, religion. I'm using religion as an example. We do it with politics. We do it with religion. This need to control other people. <clears throat> we want results, results, you know. Letting go is without results. Letting go is my knowing I'm sober. I once made an amend to Nancy <clears throat> in my first first year, I think, and she she wouldn't accept it. I had the most magnificent freedom from that amend. She never accepted it. She wouldn't forgive me. But I was free. A year later, she brought up to me, you never made an amend about that. I said, oh, I did. I meant something in my head, said, Harvey, do it again. She needs it now. First time was for me. Then I did it. Fine. She was fine with it. It's, do you believe you have a disease? Not does she believe. Do you believe that fantasy and looking and all is dangerous to your health? Not does she believe. Wife or no wife, job or no job. That's what the book says. This is about our illness. And would you spend, I'm using you as an example, so don't take it personally. Would you spend too much time?
try to convince your wife you had diabetes? <laughs> if you had diabetes? Whether she believed it or not, you needed to take your insulin every morning. Doesn't matter what she believed. No, you don't have diabetes. Okay, but you better take your insulin anyway. <laughs> That's the gimmick. When you want to help yourself, take everything that's happening about sexaholism and move it to another disease and say, would you be doing this if you had diabetes or high blood pressure and saying the same thing to your wife or to anyone else or hiding it or whatever appropriately. You don't go tell your boss the minute you see him, I have high blood pressure. Or I have diabetes if he doesn't ask. But if he sees you do insulin or sees you watching your diet, he might ask you. And then you give a simple answer. It's that easy, everybody. By the way, that's it. This we could go on and on. And there are other things coming on for the evening. Yes. Thank you. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.